This week, TransOcean launches exchange offers for unsecured notes despite priority to ho- note holders' request for comprehensive restructuring. UMB, agent to Revlon's term loan, asserts breach of credit agreement. Frontier reaches agreement in principle with First Lean Committee. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Rear Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later, you will hear from Reorg's first day team on a recap of trends and insights from second quarter bankruptcies. It's Sunday, August 16th. UMB Bank, as administrative agent to Revlon's 2016 term loan and assignee of certain dissenting term lenders, filed a complaint in the Southern District of New York against Revlon. Former administrative agent Citibank, Jeffries, Aries, and the lenders to the 2020 Branco facility. UMB asserts that Revlon in May issued $200 million in unfunded revolving loans to consenting lenders solely in order to manufacture lender consent to refinancing involving IP transfers, which the agent says breached the credit agreement sale leaseback limitations. Lenders previously took issue with what UMB calls the sham revolving loan in a letter to the company in late April, Riog reported. UMB's complaint seeks a judgment rescinding the 2020 credit agreement amendment engineered through the revolving loan unwinding the refinancing transaction, declaring the company in breach of the credit agreement and awarding damages to compensate the dissenting lenders, quote, for the loss of the liens on collateral securing payment of their loans under the 2016 credit agreement. The plaintiffs assert that the capital markets have not seen a borrower like Revlon for some time and have never seen a scheme as brazen as the 2020 transaction. Revlon acknowledged receiving a letter from UMB on August 12th that asserted certain unspecified events of default had occurred and are continuing under the credit agreement. Revlon said, quote, Citibank continues to be the agent under the credit agreement and UMB is not a party to the credit agreement in any capacity. So UMB lacks contractual privity with the, co- with the company. As a result, the UMB letter is not a valid or legitimate notice of any kind under the credit agreement, adding, there is no event of default existing or continuing under the credit agreement. So even if UMB were entitled to give a notice under the credit agreement, which it is not. The UMB letter would not constitute a triggering event under item 2.04 of Form 8K. Consequently, the UMB letter does not give rise to a default or an even event of default under the credit agreement or under any of the companies and the subsidiaries other material indebtedness. Revlon asserts UMB's complaint is, quote, without merit and that it will vigorously contest UMB's claims. TransOcean, following its announcement of a private exchange of existing 0.5% exchangeable bonds due 2023 and the transfer of some harsh environment floaters to an indirect subsidiary, and that it was working with Lazar to evaluate potential liability management transactions, announced this past week an exchange offer for some 11 series of existing notes with maturities ranging from 2021 to 2041 into $750 million of new 11.5% senior guaranteed notes due 2027. The new senior guaranteed notes would be guaranteed by TransOcean Limited and the same three indirect holding company subsidiaries that guarantee the new 2.5% notes resulting from the private exchange resulting in a, quote, structurally senior guarantee. An ad hoc group of holders claiming to hold about $1.1 billion or 54% of three tranches of TransOcean's priority guarantee notes sent a letter to the offshore driller on Monday urging it to abandon the exchange, according to a copy of the letter reviewed by Reorg. The group argues that instead of undertaking these transactions, the company should engage with the bondholder group to pursue a, quote, comprehensive restructuring to simplify and deleverage the capital structure. 
The bondholder group represented by Millbank as counsel and Evercore as financial advisor said in the correspondence with Transocean's counsel Whiten case that it is, quote, beyond dispute that the private exchange for the exchangeable notes constitutes a fraudulent transfer under the laws of every relevant jurisdiction. And that, given Transocean's insolvency, members of the board may be personally liable for damages. The private exchange may have been entered into for the benefit of a director of Transocean, who beneficially owns the exchangeable bonds, with the terms of the exchange agreement never being offered to any other holders of the exchange notes, the bondholder group says. In addition, the private exchange has no legitimate business purpose and provides little to no benefit to Transocean as a whole, according to the bondholder group. Statements regarding the plan-related mediation in the Frontier Communications cases disclose that the debtors and First Link Committee have reached an agreement in principle that would resolve the First Link Group's objections to confirmation. The agreement calls for First Link term lenders and note holders to receive a $57.5 million cash payment upon entry of a settlement order and an additional $7.5 million payment if emergence does not occur by March 31, 2021. The agreement also calls for a second lien lenders to forego their claims to default interest and agree to support the final mediator proposal in exchange for the first lien committee, agreeing not to pursue turnover claims against the second lien lenders under the intercreditor agreement. As a result of mediation, the need to finalize the agreement in principle, counsel to the debtors told Judge Robert Drain at a hearing on Tuesday that the debtors, quote, probably are not on track for the currently scheduled confirmation hearing date of August 21st. A cleansing statement regarding the mediation results filed by the debtors noted that the ad hoc note holder groups that are signatories to Frontier's RSA do not support the agreement reached between the debtors and first lien lenders and made an alternative proposal that would provide less upfront cash to first lien term lenders and note holders but preserve their rights to pursue default interest. Counsel to one of the note holder groups reminded the court at Tuesday's hearing that unsecured notes claims constitute the only impaired accepting class and suggested that the debtors' pursuit of their agreement in principle with the first link creditors without the unsecured note support could raise a quote whole host of issues not contemplated by the RSA in the context of confirmation. On the island of Puerto Rico, the official committee of unsecured creditors in Puerto Rico's Title III cases on Wednesday filed a limited preliminary objection to PREPA's motion seeking allowance of a $136 million administrative claim for front-end transition services under the Transmission and Distribution System Operation and Maintenance Agreement with Luma Energy. The UCC says that although it does not, as a general matter, oppose PREPA's entry into the T&D contract or the government party's decision to enter into a concession agreement for PREPA's T&D system, the motion raises, quote, several serious issues that the committee must bring to the court's attention as part of its fiduciary ob obligations to PREPA's unsecured creditors. The objection points out several issues, including a claim that supplemental agreement executed in connection with the T&D contract provides Luma Energy with unreasonably broad control rights with respect to an eventual PREPA plan of adjustment by creating a new condition to the occurrence of the, quote, service commencement date, which is that the court shall have confirmed a Title III plan that is reasonably acceptable to Luma Energy. The objection also states that the agreement provides Luma with the ability to receive a significant $115 million termination fee if the T&D contract terminates automatically or if PREPA fails to obtain confirmation of a plan that is reasonably acceptable to Luma, and that the front-end transition obligations contemplate a $60 million fixed fee payable in full even if no front-end trans transition services are ever provided 
as well as late fees in the form of penalty interest for late payments that are not actual and necessary for purposes of Section 503B1A of the Bankruptcy Code. On Monday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain denied the motion of Monoline insurers Ambach Assured, National and FGIC seeking appointment as co-trustees under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code to pursue certain avoidance claims on behalf of the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, or HTA, against the Commonwealth. The court found the motion unpersuasive on several grounds, including that it had already determined that the Monolines and HTA lacked colorable claims to ownership of HTA revenue transferred to the Commonwealth. The opinion also emphasizes that the First Circuit requires substantial deference to the Oversight Board in light of its mandate under PROMISA as the sole entity able to put forth a plan of adjustment in the Title III cases. The Monolene's motion, which attached a proposed complaint, alleged that HDA was stripped of its property and saw revenue diverted to the Commonwealth, rendering the authority unable to pay its debt service or adequately continue operations. The motion argued that the Promisa Oversight Board, as the sole representative of both HTA and the Commonwealth, faced an irreconcilable and intractable conflict and had refused to bring avoidance claims on HTA's behalf. The motion was opposed by the Oversight Board and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Authority, or FF. Other top stories this past week were, Speedcast secures $395 million equity commitment from CenterBridge, and UCC support to pursue path toward value-maximizing reorganization plan, rapid exit from bankruptcy. GNC enters APA with Harbin Pharmaceutical Group, files amended plan DS reflecting revised sale proposal. And three, earnings, Hertz reports 66.9% year-over-year decline in Q2 revenue, $1.366 billion in liquidity as of June 30th. And now, as always, here's Jim from Houston with a week ahead. Well, hello all, and thank you, Roxy, and greetings from Texas, where the temperatures, and I'm saying this for the benefit of any Californians who may be listening and considering a visit, the temperature is around 100 degrees and very, 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 very humid. And this ain't just down here on the swamp either, up in Cleburne, my favorite town in the Fort Worth area, it's 102. Bandera, out past San Antonio, it's 101. Odessa, it always feels like it's 105, no matter what Mr. Mercury says. So if you're thinking about pointing a U-Haul here, maybe consider Illinois, a land of Lincoln, which is more temperate. Anyways, interesting times. How about that high-yield primary market? Ball Corp, double B credit, sub-3% coupon. That show is nice if you're a borrower. It's less nice if you're an investor. We're all just hoping that 0.6 print in the CPI was a blip, not a trend. And don't you wish you'd listen to Dr. Paul and bought gold at a grand. Anyway, that's this week's bit of bleak humor. Let's consider the calendar. Monday, August 17th, there are no earnings and there was much rejoicing. Second day hearing in Global Eagle among other billable hour events. See our weekly forward for more. Tuesday, August 18th, confirmation in DS hearing in Pixis. Stay relief hearing in Hertz. A second day hearing in Briggs and Stratton and a status conference in Chesapeake. Wednesday, August 19th, omnibus hearing in McClatchy and an administrative claims hearing in Dean Goods. Thursday, August 20th, bunch of hearings, Windstream with a motion to reconsider. Alta Mesa, which is turning into the Jarndyce versus Jarndyce of EMPs, a summary judgment hearing. There's an omnibus hearing in California resources and earnings from L Brands, which more could be said, but I'm drawing it near the end of my two minutes. And on to Friday, the 21st of August, we have a confirmation hearing in Frontier and a hearing in Chesapeake. But wait, there's more. 
early tender deadlines in Revlon and Transocean, and a forbearance expiration in Lone Star. And that looks to be it. Next up are Karen Lung, Jessica Steinhagen, and Ian Howen, and they're going to tell y'all all about first day filing trends in the quarter just passed. Over to y'all, folks. Hello, this is Karen Lung talking today with the team at Reorg First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. Reorg First Day monitors Chapter 11 filings across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities and tracks trends in filings through the First Day database. Jessica and Ian are going to give us a bird's eye view today of Chapter 11 filing activity in the second quarter of 2020. With the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on the economy just getting started towards the end of Q1, which we learned from uh, Jessica and Ian's last podcast interview was the busiest first quarter in first day history. How did companies fare in the second quarter, Ian, and were any industries in particular hit the hardest? COVID-19 had a vast and staggering impact on the level of Chapter 11s filed in the country in the second quarter, with shelter-in-place orders pummeling the revenue of brick-and-mortar retail operators, including both retail store chains and restaurant chains, which were already struggling prior to the onset of the pandemic. In addition to retail, the energy industry which is already ailing in its own ways, was acutely hamstrung by the pandemic, existing commodity volatility exacerbated by COVID-19's impact on global demand. And how did 2020 uh, Q2 stack up against other recent quarters? It was the busiest quarter on record for first day, notching nearly 140 cases in the 90-day period and making first the first half of 2020 the busiest first half period on record or half-year period in general at nearly 250 cases. In particular, cases involving more than 100 million liabilities skyrocketed, departing from a monthly average of approximately eight Chapter 11s from January 2016 to April 2020, to 24 in May of of this year and 22 in June of this year. This uptick has pressed on in the second half, with July recording 25 cases with more than 100 million in liabilities by the month's end. Cases with more than 1 billion in liabilities experienced an even greater increase in filing frequency in the quarter, jumping from five in the first quarter with an average quarterly amount of approximately six since the first quarter of 2016 to 28 in the second quarter of 2020, or a 460% increase from the first quarter. By sector, more than 50% of the first half's $33 billion filings were filed by energy companies and retailers. Wow, so let's take a look, a closer look at retail, which you noted has been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. What were the biggest cases and have things started to look better as shelter in place orders have begun relaxing in certain parts of the country? I'll take that one, Karen. After the papyrus store operator SFP Franchise Corp. Pier 1 Imports, Art Van Furniture, and Modell Sporting Goods represented a lot of the first quarter retail chain filings. The second quarter ramped up the intensity with filings from True Religion, New York Handmade Soap Retailer Sabone, J. Crew, John Barbatos, Neiman Marcus, Stage Stores, JCPenney, GNC, um, and Mexican retail chain operator Grupo FAMSA. Maze retailers, including JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, and J.Crew, represented a combined $16.2 billion in Chapter 11 liabilities in an aggregate store footprint of approximately 2,900 locations. Then in June, GNC and Grupo FAMSA each reported more than $1 billion of debt. 
Through the end of the first half, retail chain Chapter 11s represented more than $22 billion of aggregate liabilities. And from June 2015 through the end of the first half of this year, retail chains have accumulated nearly $70 billion in aggregate Chapter 11 liabilities in connection with approximately 110 bankruptcy filings. Thanks, Jessica. Have you seen these filings slow down since the end of the second quarter? Not really. Since the end of the first half, there have been no signs of deceleration, with G-Star Raw's U.S. retail arm Lucky Brand, kitchenware retailer Sir La Table, apparel and home goods retailer Muji, RTW Retail Wins, which owns the New York & Co. brand Fashion to Figure, and Happy by Nature retail chains, Brooks Brothers and Northeastern gift retailer The Paper Saw store all filing within the first two weeks of July. Less than a week later, Asina Retail Group filed with more than $10 billion in liabilities, becoming the largest retail chain chapter 11 filing by debt size, just inching over Sears as the prior record holder with $12.5 billion in total liabilities listed on its chapter 11 petition. Then within the first few days of August, Taylor Brands, which owns the men's warehouse retail brand and mall-based retailer Lord & Taylor filed Chapter 11, bringing the level of aggregate retail chain Chapter 11 debt for 2020 to date to more than $35 billion in connection with roughly 25 bankruptcies. This number surpasses each of the complete year totals for 2016 through 2019 by at least $10 billion. And has it been largely the same story, the same kind of narrative uh, for the bulk of these retailers? or have some had more unique challenges related to the pandemic? In general, yes. While the vast majority of these cases have been pretty straightforward with respect to the events leading to the case, with brick and mortar already struggling and COVID-19 induced store closure serving as the um, nail on the coffin, as Stage Store said in May, there have been definitely some more nuanced cases. For example, Brooks, Brother, Brooks Brothers noted particular struggles stemming from the surge and people working from home, which has curbed the need for workplace attire, one of its specialties. Health and wellness product supplier GNC also dealt with some inconsistency on behalf of the various municipalities in which it operates, some of which deemed the business as an essential service and others disagreeing, resulting in unexpected forced closures. Was it mostly retail or were there other types of consumer discretionary companies struggling as well, Ian? So just about any type of company operating brick and mortar channels has grappled with significantly less revenue than pre-pandemic levels. In addition to traditional brick and mortar retail chains, there's been a flurry of restaurant chain filings from bakery restaurant chains like La Pen Quotidien and to children's restaurant and entertainment venue brand Chuck E. Cheese, racking up more restaurant filings in the first six months of 2020 than in any prior complete year on record, and filings from companies and other brick-and-mortar services markets like salon chains and gyms, including both 24-hour fitness and Gold's Gym. All in all, the frequency of consumer discretionary sector Chapter 11s jumped more than 90% from Q1 to Q2. Did you see any recurring themes uh, with the restaurant filings that you tracked, Jessica, like casual dining versus quick service? Well, after outpacing retail chain filings in the first quarter, with six restaurant companies operating nine brands as either owners, franchisors, or franchisees all filing in the first two months of the year, they continued to pile up in the second quarter, boosted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurant filings in the second quarter included Food First Global, which runs the Bravo Fresh Italian restaurant chain, 
deli and restaurant chain Two J's, Le Pan Cotidien's U.S. Arm, Barfly Ventures, which owns the Midwest Hopcat Stella's Lounge and Grand Rapids Bar and Restaurant brands, CFRA, which operates which serves franchisee for roughly 50 IHOP restaurants in the Southeast, and then also the first ever billion-dollar restaurant chain filing of Chuck E. Cheese. Altogether, the restaurant chain filings in the second quarter were casual dining chains, but there were also bakeries and quick-service restaurants. Just a few days after the end of the second quarter, another billion-dollar restaurant chain filed Chapter 11 with MPC International, which is the franchisee for more than 1600 Pizza Hut and Wendy's restaurants. Um, But many of the second quarter restaurant filers lamented the COVID-19 crisis, which Barfly Ventures dubbed, quote, unprecedentedly deleterious, and Le Pan Cotidien characterized as, quote, unforeseen and unquantifiable in its effects. But they also noted industry-wide challenges that predated the pandemic. LPQ mentioned shifts in preferences from casual dining concepts toward grab-and-go restaurants, Barfly cited a a slowing of the craft beer craze, um, and Food First Global noted the rise of quick service and fast casual options relative to casual dining options, as well as burdensome labor costs. Now let's turn to energy. You mentioned that it was another bustling industry for Chapter 11 cases. What types of energy companies did you see the most? Energy filings in the second quarter nearly doubled the level of the first quarter, bringing the first half total to approximately 40 cases, which has not happened since the first half of 2016. Most of these filers were oil and gas companies, which saw a 58% to 48 or to 42% split um, between oil production companies and oil-filled services and equipment companies. 22's energy filers had enough to grapple with before the pandemic, including a steep drop in oil prices to start the year. COVID-19 complications have now blanketed the industry with more uncertainty as lenders become less willing to fund distressed companies' drilling operations. These issues were further exacerbated by an oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, with oil prices descending to the lowest level since 2002, according to the Templar energy debtors. For services and support companies, frac sand suppliers had a notable presence in the first half of the year and in the second quarter in particular. Um, Basin Transload, Vista Propens, and Logistics, and High Crush each filing in June. These companies have suffered falling demand for northern white frac sand as production companies move to cheaper options to cut costs. The first half of 2020 ended with just over $40 billion in aggregate oil and gas Chapter 11 liabilities, just slightly beating out the first half of 2016, which previously held the record for total oil and gas sector debt. And what about coal? Uh, did you see coal cases this year as well, Ian? The coal industry continued to see Chapter 11 filings in the first half of 2020, with three thermal coal mining companies filing in the first quarter, Longview Power, Foresight, and Hartshorn, setting ongoing distress in and an industry downturn. Thermal Coalmeyer Foresight also noted a race to the bottom for the coal industry, with heavy competition among coal suppliers for for a shrinking customer base, all within a challenging regulatory and legislative atmosphere, with a resulting drop in coal prices. The international coal market has been under additional pressure due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the resultant slowdown in the global economy, Foresight noted. Murray Energy um, and metallurgical coal subsidiaries also filed in the first quarter, lamenting adverse impacts of global trade conflicts on international demand for steel, along with weak vendor and customer bargaining power because so many coal companies have gone through bankruptcy. 
Although coal production chapter 11 filings in 2018 and 2019 noted a healthier market for metallurgical coal, which is used to produce steel relative to thermal coal, which is used to produce electricity, coal filers in late 2019 and the first half of 2020, including Hartshorn and Murray, say this market declined substantially beginning in the fourth quarter of 2019, resulting in a sustained low price environment. Other coal companies that have filed in Chapter 11 in 2020 have cited similar struggles with respect to the metallurgical side of their businesses. So I know that the shelter-in-place orders from COVID-19 occurring just before the start of the second quarter and also significant travel restrictions globally have had a huge effect. What did you see from the transportation and travel sector? That's right. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused significant distress in the travel industry since its onset, with the airline industry hit particularly hard. Airline filings began with Miami Air International right at the end of Q1 and took off in Q2 with further filings from Raven Air on April 5th, Jet Suite on April 28th, followed by Colombian airline Avianca on May 5th, South America's largest passenger airline, LATAM Airlines, on May 26, and Mexico's leading airline by market share, fleet size, and network, Aeromexico, on June 20th to close out the quarter. There were also two big rental car companies that filed in the second quarter, Hertz and Advantage, both of which pinned their bankruptcies on stagnant travel. Advantage, which stressed its particular troubles as a primarily airport-based car rental company, noted a 95% decline in revenue for car rental companies in the wake of the pandemic that has brought government-mandated travel restrictions and stay-in-place orders. Ian, you uh, and Jessica mentioned in your recent mid-year review of Chapter 11 filings to date that as COVID-19 has proliferated in the U.S., Healthcare bankruptcies seem to drop off. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so after three consecutive years of significant increases in health healthcare sector chapter 11 filing frequency, with 2019 holding many first day records for the sector, these filings started to dissipate shortly after the pandemic broke out. From September 2019 through the end of March 2020, for example, the healthcare sector averaged between five and six Chapter 11s per month. In April, there was just one healthcare Chapter 11 case, followed by three in May and then increasing to four in June. Interestingly, filings in the healthcare sector by facility operators in particular have been the most elusive since the pandemic began. What were the quarter's biggest Chapter 11 filers with respect to debt? Among the many records Q2 has set for a first day is five filings by companies reporting more than $10 billion in debt. Frontier Communications, Intelsat, Hertz, LATAM Airlines, and Chesapeake Energy. The highest number of cases of this size with respect to debt going back to January 2016 is three, which occurred in the first quarter of 2019. The largest number of these cases of this size in any complete year is three, which happened in 2017 and 2019. In terms of ranges for the liabilities of these companies filing for Chapter 11, Ian, can you tell us anything about uh, the composition of the of the Chapter 11 filers over the quarter? Yeah, absolutely. So cases in the 10 million to 100 million range made up a little over half, um, 57% of all first day filings in the second quarter, after representing approximately 65% of the first quarter's filings. Cases in the 100 million to 1 billion of debt range made up 22% in the second quarter after accounting for about 28% in the first quarter. 
Cases with more than one billion in liabilities made up approximately one-fifth of the quarter's cases, compared with less than 5% in the first quarter. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jessica and Ian, after the end of a very busy second quarter. Listeners, if you're subscribers to Reorg, please check out the First Day Team's recently published mid-year review, which discusses all of these trends and more. Thanks. And thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe.